Thank you for joining us for this episode of From All Sides, a podcast by Cube Group, where we explore the strategic, organisational and human sides of the major issues facing public value organisations. In the current COVID-19 crisis, our series focuses on the different ways this global pandemic impacts public service leaders and their organisations. And we discuss the ways we can be better prepared to lead Australia's response and recovery. More information on each episode is on our website, www.cubegroup.com.au. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, I'm Tom Craven. Today is the 2nd of September, 2020. It's a little over six months since the COVID-19 pandemic hit Australia. The past month or so has been particularly difficult for Victoria. The second wave of infections has seen levels of transmission far surpassing the initial wave in April. Thankfully, Victoria's swift response appears to be making significant progress in suppressing transmission of the disease. New cases were down to under 100 for the last few days, hopefully signalling long-term progress in suppressing the virus. The economic news is much less positive. New figures show that Australia's GDP contracted by 7% during the June quarter, the worst contraction on record. The economic crisis is not impacting all sectors equally. Food and hospitality sectors in particular contracted by almost 40% in the quarter, with arts and recreation also hardest hit. These are large parts of our economy. Food and accommodation employs more than 600,000 people in Australia, some 5% of the country's workforce. These challenges are just some of the multiple waves of challenge and disruption that the public value sectors are facing, beginning with responding to the ongoing threat of the virus and maintaining services while under physical distancing restrictions, managing an enormous backlog as activities that had to be scaled down or delayed are beginning to recommence, addressing the rising complexity and complications of issues in the community, and reducing and addressing the fallout of the social and economic damage that the pandemic has caused. Our guest today is Karen Bollinger. Karen is a widely known leader in the tourism and business events industry. She's the former CEO of the Melbourne Convention Bureau. Uh, she's currently the managing director of APAC for PCMA, the Global Business Events Lead Body. She's also a strategic advisor to the Best Cities Global Alliance, an alliance of 11 of the world's major cities, as well as her own independent consultancy. Karen, thanks for being part of this conversation. Thank you. Can we start with hearing a bit about where we're speaking to you from? What's your home office set up and how have you found remote working so far? Well, we're speaking here in Melbourne and I'm in a, a bayside suburb, so I'm very fortunate that my lockdown limit of five kilometres, half of it's over the water. So I haven't quite practised and got my skills walking on water there yet. However, I'm able to get out and enjoy the foreshore. But I'm in a, a beautiful home study that I had set up to be my fun place and it's now taken over to be my very much workplace. So I'm surrounded by books and a couch and paintings that I've started and I spend most of my day on my computer now in the COVID world. And have we got any likely background noise, dogs, children, anything like that? There is a good chance you might hear my dog because I'm on the side of the house and the garbage men and the postmen she doesn't particularly like. So she will often race out there at some stage and have a good bark. And people will often say to me, is that your dog I hear? And I'm like, yes, sorry. So yes, she does that regularly. Something for us to look forward to. Karen, let's start with the economic impacts of the crisis. So for a while now, people, uh, leaders, government and others have recognised that COVID-19 is not just a health crisis, it's also an economic one. And particularly tourism, the arts, hospitality, those face-to-face -face sectors are the hardest hit. 
Can we start with just a bit about these sectors? Why is tourism, hospitality and the creative industries, why are they so important to Australia? Well, you know, this industry sector, it's almost like the fabric and the heart of communities, if you like. You know, I always liken it to if you go into a a city and it was just buildings and infrastructure, it would really be heartless, right? It would be very cold. And you can see that in the cities globally where people are actually not in them anymore. So the people and then, of course, what they're doing in there and the services and the products that they're providing, and of course, in the broader arts community, are really important for a city's livability, but also important for their placemaking and their place branding. And certainly Melbourne's got that in spades. We don't have a natural asset, but what we do have is certainly culture that's come up through our arts and creative industries, and certainly through the food and the restaurants and you know, the accommodation and the shows that we have here. So it's it's really, for me, it's actually about, I guess, the the fabric of of our very community. And well, and like you say, for Melbourne, right, that's been such a big part of Melbourne's story and success, I suppose, over the last couple of decades has been exactly that, our, our laneways, our, our food, our Melbourne being just a great place to live. Yeah, and, and you know what? I'm not from Melbourne originally and I'm from the city up the north and, and sold that city for many years. And to be honest with you, it was a very easy sell because I would often say I'll put them out in the harbour and show them the bridge and... My work was done and I knew Melbourne had to work a lot harder. And when I came down here, it was one of those things that there's definitely a vibe and definitely culture of Melbourne, Melbournians. And I think that is, you know, you can't put a name on it or a brand on it, but it's really important to what we feel about our city, how proud we are, how we are. I wouldn't quite say a big country town, but the friendliness comes through, the openness. There's a lot of things in there that even Sydney siders and other people around Australia admire, which is, I guess, why they all come here from a tourism perspective at the end of the day. What's your sense? We, we've all seen a bit of the data around the damage the crisis is doing to some of these industries that make that vibrancy, tourism, hospitality, etc. How much are those things do you think at risk at the moment? How big a crisis is this for, for those sectors that that fabric of our culture as you, as you described? You know our industry and we call it the visitor economy so I will call it by its official name because we don't believe it's one dimension just about people coming here on holidays. It's business people, it's, it is people who are coming to shows etc and people who are visiting family and friends. So it, it reaches a whole, whole depth. I guess you know the, the visitor economy is quite substantial and, and it actually employs a significant amount of people in the small, medium enterprises. And I think that, first of all, that's actually what makes it up. So you've got the, the big blockbuster hotel chains, venues, all of that. But the real core of it is, is all those, you know, restaurants and bars that we go to, you know, actors, theatre, artists, all of that. So that's been impacted significantly because, you know, the large majority of them are out of work. It's only the government's ability to do things like, you know, takeaway meals and coffee that's enabled some of our restaurants and bars to continue. But I'd also say if you walked into the city CBD of Melbourne today, a lot of those would not be operating. And if JobKeeper wasn't available, I think we'd be in demise. And some of the research is, is talking about, you know, 44% of tourism operators state that if this goes on beyond 12 months, that they will probably not come back. And that's 44% of, you know, the economy being wiped out. But also, like I say, that whole cultural thing just disappearing. So it's a real challenge for us as a, as a sector, as a visitor economy as a whole. Pretty, it's pretty stark, isn't it? 
began with talking about tourism and, and the visitor economy. I won't make that mistake again. We talk about That's all right. <laughs> we talk about the visit, visitor economy sort of contribution to our life. But as you mentioned, it, it's an enormous employer, a big source of people's livelihoods in its own right. I think I've got a stat that there's more than 200,000 Victorians, you know, something like seven or eight percent of Victoria's workforce works in the the visitor economy sector, which, you know, is an enormous number of people. And like you say, a lot of these are relatively small businesses. They don't have enormous cash flows to ride through these times without having a crystal ball. How much of a challenge do you see the next six months being for these sectors? And I suppose, what do you think needs to happen to make sure we don't lose that sort of capital and infrastructure that makes up a lot of a lot of this sector? I think, you know, it's important to note that the visitor economy actually has quite a big ecosystem that sits around it. And not a lot of people actually understand that. They think of it as direct, you know, hotels, restaurants and bars. But if you think of the producers, the farmers, if you think of the dry cleaners, if you think of the transport infrastructure that surrounds that, the people who are printing and marketing, all of that actually is impacted by the fact that a large proportion of our industry isn't, isn't I guess, active at this point in time. So, so a crystal ball for me, I actually think, unfortunately for us with this second wave, that it will actually get a little bit tougher. I, I don't think we've seen the good stuff yet. I think we saw in the first wave the creativity come out, the people understanding what they had to do pivot, if you like, to stay afloat and and reconfigure their businesses. I think the second wave has taken quite a big shock. And I think that that's where we will potentially see some fallout of some businesses just not coming back. And I think that's why, you know, the government intervention with the JobKeeper and the subsidies is incredibly important. And it's not just about maintaining jobs, but it's actually also about stimulating demand. We need people to get out there and we need them to be out there in healthy, hygienic ways. So you you probably would have seen just recently the arts community talking about how can they actually get people to some of these larger events. If you saw the one in the UK that they did where they were in little fenced off their own little, I don't want to say cages, but but areas. And and then kind of you look at that and go, it, it looks ridiculous. But you know what? If it's actually bringing us back, maybe that's what we should be thinking of. Because I also think there's a pent-up demand that we want to get out. We want to go and have coffees with our friends and we want to go and see a show and we want our life to come back to normal as we know it. So so I I think we're going to get a little bit tougher, but I think we've actually got to start thinking about when we get out, what does that look like, the safe opening plan, and how do we actually make sure that people do start actually consuming, if you like. So that that's, I think, one of the big questions that we actually have to be at the forefront of our minds today. Well, why don't, why don't we go to that topic around how the sector is innovating and, and changing in response to this? Personally, I've been so impressed, you probably understate that I've been so pleased with, with the amount of innovation that you've seen from these businesses. You, you mentioned the bubble. What are some other examples that you're seeing of perhaps it's easiest with the hospitality sector, but also the arts and, and other parts of tourism? Are there other interesting innovations that you're seeing at the moment that we want to talk about? Yeah, there's heaps of them. And I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of even some of the things I'm doing. So I think, you know, we all want to support Australian businesses and I think that that and Victorian businesses. So actually that's spearheaded quite a lot of, I think, people's perspectives of, you know, investing locally and keeping jobs maintained in people's livelihoods. So I think that's actually fantastic. And as a result of that, that's actually, I guess, you know, you've got anybody from the gin makers making hand sanitizers to, in my instance, there's a local restaurant called Atlas Dining. And within a week, he had little boxes like, you know, the almost semi-prepared meals and you get delivered to your house. Well, I've been doing that 
for weeks, months actually. <laughs> and I get really amazing meals and I'm having an online dinner party on Saturday night and, you know, Atlantic Group are giving me a three-course already-made meals. So I don't actually have to leave the house, which I'm not sure is a good thing or not. But then there are things like, you know, people are doing virtual tours of things like the Shrine of Remembrance. So you can actually go in and actually have a tour of that, you know, like you're actually in VR walking around it. And so what it's doing is enabling those facilities to come to life in a different way. The arts have done a really fantastic job. You know, I think Victoria have done this great job with this keeping Victoria live music sessions on Sunday night and this live streaming it and putting it on TV. So there are some really interesting things. I went to a virtual dinner party across Australia the other week where you popped into rooms and met people that I've never known. And I guess it forced me to interact with people that I wouldn't know normally. And also, you know, they had a musician there that I didn't know about. I knew he was a hip hop artist, but it was really cool to just see him up front and close. And they, they'd actually taken whole gamut of activities that we could interact in. What it's done for me is force me more out of my comfort zone and actually participate in things that I wouldn't have. But that's because the industry are being more creative and giving me more offerings than I would normally. So I think that's really exciting. You know, am I buying local? Yes. Am I being more engaged in local artists and creative? Absolutely. To the point where, you know, I'm part of the film festival. I'm going to see films online. Whereas maybe I might not have done that in the past. So I think it's, it's very exciting, but I think the next is how do we actually evolve that and maintain some of that momentum to keep going. And I know I spoke to my local coffee shop the other week and she told me it was more cost-effective for her to do takeaway coffees and, you know, sandwiches and stuff than it actually was to open her restaurant. And that, I was like, whoa, okay, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so she was talking about whether she remains that way or not. But, of course, that's, there's regulations around that. So who knows? Mm. It is a challenge, I suppose, to turn these into sustainable businesses, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of these wonderful examples we see, we, we do have to think about the sustainability of the business that sits behind it. The other thought I was having as you are talking, though, which sort of reinforces the point that you began with, which is just how wonderful these things are to our quality of life, being, you know, locked in our home at, at all hours of the day to be able to experience a tour of the Shrine of Remembrance where kids and I went to the, this isn't local, but kids and I went to the British Museum virtually and wandered around Babylonian artefacts, been enjoying all sorts of theatre shows online, very generously provided. I mean, they do, they're just, some of these things are really just getting us through, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what? It's, it's probably stuff you may not have fully done before, but I also think when you get to the live, you'll actually appreciate it a lot more because you've seen it and viewed it in a more intimate environment. So if you think the museum, you know, I'm sure when you get there, your conversations will be about what you saw online in real life. And I think that's actually adding another dimension to a visit, if you like, and almost taking you, you know, backstage so you can see how things were created and involved. I think we don't want to be here, but we are. So, you know what, let's actually capitalise on what we've got and let's think about when we come out, what that actually means for us. I don't know about you, I've done courses online. <laughs> I'm like a consumer. I'm sick of watching the screen and being in front of Zoom all the time, I get over that. But I would sit there and say, I think I've used it better than I probably would have and caught up with more people than I would have normally because I've got time.
Let's turn to an area you've spent a lot of time in, conferences and events. This is another area that has obviously been hit really hard by the pandemic. It's something that needs a great deal of adaptation for the new world that we're in. I mean, business, business events, training events, professional development, they're a big part of the professional calendar, aren't they? They're, they're how we learn new ideas. They're a big part of how we create new networks and, and innovation. They're, they're part of the sort of fabric of the working year for many of us. Can you talk a bit about, I suppose, how important these events are, but also how this sector's wrestling with and adapting to a, a physically distant world? Yeah, it's changed significantly. You know, I was probably at one of the last events that were held just before we closed down. And bizarrely enough, it was in New South Wales and I was talking about the impact of bushfires on communities. So, so we've come out of that and then no sooner did we, you know, I flew back in, you know, I, we had flight after flight cancelled, so I truly almost was one of the last ones out of Canberra. Um, and I came back and the world absolutely changed for event, completely stopped almost. So, so, you know, we've always had this digital world as part of events, but people who go to events go for a lot of reasons. So they go for professional development, but it's about knowledge exchange. It's about trade and investment. It's about the networking and the collaboration that go on into those events. And so to do that on a platform like we are, video, is just not easy because it's actually, you know, about having that coffee and having that conversation out of something that you've just seen or participated in. And so I think that that's changed our world completely. But I think what's happened is it's accelerated the use of digital and I think digital won't replace face-to-face, but I think when we come out of it, digital will be actually used quite differently than it was before. So if you think about it before, a lot of digital was, you know, they live stream some of the keynotes that edit it barely and then say, that's our digital component, was now 100% of what we're doing. And we're, we're about to roll out and launch a a conference um, here very shortly. And so the whole way we've actually had to pull the content together, the communications around it, the digital component of it. When people are online, what are they doing online? We all know we don't want to be sat and talked at. We want to be involved in conversations. So how do we actually facilitate that? But I think that when we come out, because we'll have more knowledge of the digital realm, it will actually then change when we go to a conference. Why do we go to a conference and what will we do at that conference? And I think you and I had a chat the other day about an example that you had, which I thought was absolutely spot on. I don't know whether you want to share it. Yeah, my observation was only that when you think about the advantages of being face-to-face, one of the advantages is certainly not the ability to just listen to someone speak uh, for a long period of time. That's something that we can all do at home and at times... It's felt like potentially attending a relatively long presentation that you could watch from home was the price you pay to then have the conversation afterwards with your, with your colleagues. It's a horrible thing to say, but they're always great speakers that I listen to. I am, I am aware of in academic circles, uh, professional conferences that have rejigged that entirely to provide papers well in advance, to enable a sort of online uh, chat around the papers that, that sorts the conversation into different topics and then allowing participants to group around the topics they're most interested in. So just skip straight from the front presentation to focus their time on a, on a particular topic in a paper or something like that, allowing little interest groups to develop around particular topics, which in a way is a very efficient way of sorting yourself out while you're getting your lunch as to, as to who you want to talk to. Actually, this allows for these purpose groups to, to develop. So I think that's a great, a great example of how, incorporating that into the the conference schedule can actually make them even much more efficient for the types of things we want to get out of. 
Yeah, and, and you know what? The next generation will in, influence this as well. So, so you almost have, you know, two groups: the old ones that maybe want to go back to it, but they're all they're being forced now to try new things, right? So they've got no choice. So that, like you say, would potentially add value, speed them up, and get dialogue going that's actually much more relevant to what they want to talk about quicker rather than like you say waiting for 90 minutes having the cup of tea and then if you're like me at a conference you know I have a plan before I walk in if I if I need to see clients I'm like right there's five people I need to see in the next two days and I've got to find them and it's not always easy to do that whereas imagine if I actually could speed that up so when I'm there I'm actually having the conversation I really need to have rather than the soft conversation to get there. And I think that's where things will change. And then the next generation coming through want things completely differently. So I think that, you know, we've got to meet in the middle somewhere. But I actually also see that, you know, the software product is developing at a rate of knots. It has not caught up to us yet. But you know what? In another couple of months, it will absolutely be catching up to us. And that is where, you know, the game changes may actually come. So we've got to be ready for that as destinations. And it's the whole supply chain. What does that actually mean? So I think there's some healthy conversations to be had in that space. I guess the demand side of the equation for the professional sector itself are We've often reflected on, on this program about the, we began in a crisis sense, in a, a short-term crisis that we all hoped we'd get over pretty quickly. We're now six months into a pandemic and we're looking at another six months to, before we return to anything like normal uh, and whatever that normal looks like. That's, that's a long time. I wonder if you have any thoughts about, or, or just advice, I suppose, for public sector leaders about the importance of professional development and, and networking those things that normally business as usual and how we run professional organisations but may have fallen on the back burner over the last six months. Yeah. You know, a lot of the survey work that we've done through PCMA has been around, you know, the challenges that our industry faces, both from supply and participant and planner side. And, you know, the number one thing that came through equally on all of them was their ability to upskill and reskill. And so, so that's an investment. Now, companies, unfortunately, that's where they've potentially cut back because it's, a, you know, it's an easy thing to say, well, we, don't, we shouldn't be investing because we can't afford it. I'd rather keep people on. But I'd also sit there and say, in fact, your talent today is probably your single biggest asset. So you need to be investing in that and you need to be thinking about the skills that they will actually need in the future. So, you know, you talk a lot about the youth coming through and they want micro credentials, but some of those credentials are in things like critical thinking, you know, digital literacy, design thinking. There is a ton of stuff that they need their traditional learning, if you like, to be shifted into something that's much more current. And you think of this environment we're in now, we were operating one way today and tomorrow it's a 360 degree turn. And I think of, you know, our industry, because you think of like, you know, event plans and the skills that they have. Well, they have strategy and logistics, but they're able to think on their feet. They are so used to something potentially going wrong that they have to respond like that. And I think that's, it's a critical thinking skill. You know, it's a problem solving skill. And that's what employers of the future are looking for. And that's the thing that will actually add value to your bottom line. So I'd say keep investing, you know, but think about what you're investing in and think about what your business needs and where the gaps are. And then that's where you'd be looking to, you know, your programs that will actually lift, lift your team. And, you know, financial literacy is a really big thing. There's a ton of things in there that maybe were not what we would consider 
traditional professional development was now they're absolutely at the forefront of what we need to have and do. I think that's a really well said and a great point. We talk about those things being for the future, but we're, you know, we're in a new future right now, aren't we? And, and we're all learning new skills and needing to pick things up really quickly. As you were speaking about the skills of the event sector, they're so good at just mucking in and figuring it out, aren't they? Becoming an expert Correct. in rewiring electricity if they need to, just to make the event happening or whatever it is. That rapid development of skill set, I suspect if we, as leaders, if we're thinking about what our workforce need, not only to just get through this period, but actually to thrive in this period, there's a, a range of those rapid skill sets that we're, that we're in the future now and we need to develop all of those things sort of immediately. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's that agility and the ability to deal in a crisis and event planners have that in spades because, you know what, things happen in live events that you cannot plan for and you just have to be able to turn on a coin and just say, right, you know what, that's not the direction, this is the direction, that's what we're actually doing now. You know, whether, a, like you say, your lighting goes out, a band doesn't turn up, it could be absolutely anything. And you just have to plan for the unforeseen and plan for the non-non-foreseen. <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a real skill set that can be transferred into other areas. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, the other thing I was thinking about as well is this is a particularly important time for networks, isn't it? Where we're a bit more distant, a bit less able to naturally interact and make new connections. But we're also at a time where a lot of us are in very busy, whether you're in the front line responding to COVID or whether you're, you know, working out the future of a highly affected business, whatever it is, those networks are actually more important than ever before. So a way, despite the crisis mentality, the ability for workers to be able to build their networks is now, again, more important than ever. Yeah, and networks, you know, that's really what conferences were all about is building those networks. I don't know about you, but I've got a massive network globally and that's come about from all the activity I've done on the global stage. So, so I can pick up the phone to people and just have conversations on various topics, which I always find really fascinating, but you get different views, different insights. And I think that's really exciting and, and really healthy. So conferences do that. And, you know, I always think of COVID, they are collaborating globally to cure COVID. It's not a one, one dimensional, one, you know, entity activity. And that's come about from them probably building their network at events and conferences. You know, I, I watch some of those speakers speaking on TV here in Victoria, and I've met a lot of them because they've held their conferences here. And I'm so proud and excited about that. But, but I actually know that them being here has actually helped accelerate some of their their work far greater than if they were just stuck in their lab doing it by themselves. So, so it's about the platforms that events provide for that. Well, well said. And look, if that's true of medical researchers, it's, it's going to be just as true for those supporting tourism industry to get back on its feet. That's happening around the world too. For those working out how social services is going to work in a, in a distanced world, everyone's doing that around the world too. I, I think yeah, now's the time we're learning so much that sharing is critically important. I want to take us to maybe just the future of professional development more broadly. Higher education even, we've seen the rise of online universities. There's been announcements recently from Google about how they're going yeah. to do online higher education. Yeah, where do you see professional development more broadly going in a more probably digitally enabled world, but coming out of a crisis that's spurring a lot of innovation? 
I, you know, I think that it goes back to some of the conversation we're having from like how we learn will change. I, I don't know whether you've done any courses online, Tom, but I have. And, and you know, they're okay, but <laughs> maybe I'm going to the wrong university. It, it's not the same as being with your peers. So, so that's that whole balance. But you know what? Could I probably watch a lecture online before I get there? Absolutely. But do I want to talk about it with someone and actually explore it? Yes. And, and you know, there's a lot of talk about the young, how they will be educated. And, and it is those micro-credentials. They say they're not going to be at university for three years like we were. And unless you're probably a doctor, we want them to be at university longer than that, right? But, you know, in the business world and getting MBAs, are they relevant? And I'm not saying they are or they're not, but I'm sitting here saying the young are questioning that because they will have diverse careers. They will not be a financial accountant forever and a day. They would actually potentially be a financial accountant. They might be a software engineer one day. They might have a startup another day. So, so what they're looking for is skills that will actually enable them to have depth and diversity across their career. I actually think that's really interesting because what it means is our traditional education model actually has to change. And that's actually right through the school curriculum. Some really great thinking about going on and an exploration of, you know, schools and how we're teaching because you've got to get them ready to actually go into their next lot of learning, which might not be the traditional university. What you want to do is fire up their thinking and their research and their ability to, I guess, explore a bit further. And, and I, I actually think that's the way that they'll go. You know, Google is starting a campus because there's a void, right? Airbnb started because there was a void. Uber started because there was a void. So, you know, if that's not telling, then I think we have to shape shift to accommodate that. And you might have some traditional stuff that remains in there, but I'd also sit there and say, let's actually think hard about what this next generation wants and how we, how we deliver that. And I actually think that, you know, us who've been around a bit, we'll see this forum and actually you know, tap into some of the benefits a bit better than we probably were because we were maybe set set in our ways. There's nothing like a crisis to spur the sort of innovation that we've been talking about for, for forever, right? I think educators certainly have been thinking about this stuff for a very long time, but even the amount of material that was produced for school kids online, the ABC, et cetera, in, in a really short space of time was really, in my view, really impressive. And it's the kind of things that have been happening to a certain degree all around, but there's nothing like a major crisis to really spur those things along. Yeah, it's really accelerated change. The things that we've probably thought about and now actually have to be in play because we've had no choice. You know, you can't not educate your children, right? And I also think some of that will start to think about how children do learn and, you know, one size doesn't fit all. So we homeschooled our son, so we're not traditional educators, I guess, but, but I'd sit there and say the school system doesn't cater for a variety of learning styles. And so how are we actually making sure that no one does get left behind and that we're also stimulating the different styles of learning that will actually add dimensions into our workforce. Because you, you hear a lot of those stories about these people who've just created and made some amazing things, dropouts at school, but, you know, their thinking was a little bit different. We've got to think about how do we actually harness that 
We're a country that's been very reliant on traditional services, but I think professional services now are, in fact, where our future would be. Although I think there'll probably be a shift to manufacturing, but I don't think it's going to be manufacturing as we knew it. So, yeah, professional development is really important. And I think it's how we deliver it, why people are showing up and what they want to do with it, are some of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. We began this conversation around a sector that's experiencing a very difficult time. Um, we've talked a lot about innovation, but we also have begun, I think, with a difficult picture for a sector. I wonder, just as a way of finishing, what are some signs of positivity and hope you're seeing in, in the visitor economy sector? You know, I really think the creativity and innovation is something that we can be proud of. And I think it's actually made us all realise and I would hope, and this has been, you know, something that I've harped on about for a number of years, is we're not necessarily recognised as one of those, you know, gold star industries or even career choices, if you like. But I think it's actually indicated how important the visitor economy is from, from what it means to a destination and a city. And so it's actually how do we actually continue to bring it back? but make it actually resilient when it comes back. And so there's some, you know, structural changes that will have to be made in order for this to be sustainable over the long term. And as I said before, that's actually about destinations and cities being incredibly livable. So I'm hoping that people see the value of it and I'm hoping people see the fact that it's worth investing in and participating in, not just for the fun, but for, you know, for, for our lifestyles, really. And so I guess that's the, the blue sky I would hope to see. Uh, my guest today has been Karen Bollinger. Karen, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Thank you.